Hello, Imagine listeners. This is Maggie Van Dorn, America's audio producer. We have an exciting new podcast from America Media to share with you. It's called Preach, the Catholic Homilies podcast. On each episode, listeners will first hear an inspiring homily, especially delivered for the podcast, and then take a privileged peek into the heart and mind of the preacher in a conversation with the host, Jesuit priest, and America's associate editor, Ricardo De Silva. Whether you're a preacher looking for inspiration or a Catholic in the pews who believes, like Pope Francis, that Catholic homilies could use some work, I hope you'll check out the Preach podcast. To give you a taste of the show, we're sharing this week's episode of Preach, featuring America's editor-in-chief, Sam Sawyer. And to hear more episodes of Preach, just click on the link in our show notes. One of the ways I describe my experience of preaching is it's it's believing out loud for people. What I want when I sit in a congregation and I'm listening to a homily, and so also what I want to offer people when I'm the one delivering the homily, is this is worth believing in, and it's possible to believe in this. And when you do, life opens up. Grace abounds. Welcome to Preach, a podcast from America Media on the art of Catholic preaching. I'm your host, Ricardo de Silva, a Jesuit priest from South Africa, associate editor at America Media in New York, and also associate pastor at the Church of St. Francis Xavier. In each episode, we take you into the minds and hearts of some of the finest preachers in the Catholic Church. We listen to their homilies, learn what makes them great, and draw inspiration to keep preaching the good news. This week on Preach, we are joined by Sam Sawyer. Sam is a Jesuit of the USA East Province of the Jesuits. He's also the 15th Editor-in-Chief of America Media, which means he's my brother in ministry and also my boss. Welcome to Preach, Sam. It's great to be here. Thank you. Sam, the readings you're preaching on are for the 12th Sunday in Ordinary Time, Year A which are taken from the book of Jeremiah, St. Paul's letter to the Romans, and the Gospel of Matthew. In the homily, you draw insight from all three. Can you situate these readings for us in the context of what we're about to hear? Sure. So the Gospel, which is really where I'm, my primary focus is, the Gospel is taken from a section of Matthew that is sort of a collection of sayings and advice Jesus gives to his disciples about how they are to conduct themselves in ministry and in the preaching of the kingdom. And there isn't really a narrative arc beyond that. It's mostly just a compilation of sayings that the evangelist has put together. The context we have in Jeremiah is it's Jeremiah speaking about the experience of persecution and his reliance on God, which sort of rhymes with some of the themes in the gospel as frequently happens between the first reading and the gospel and the lectionary selection. And then in Romans, we have Paul doing some thinking about how sin and grace relate and how grace transforms the experience of what we first encounter through sin. So really easy readings to make sense of. Oh, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as a preacher, I find these this kind of gospel that doesn't have a narrative structure to it pretty challenging. I know the audience you have in mind because, as I said, we're colleagues in ministry. So you usually preach on a Sunday at the Church of St. Francis Xavier, where I am associate pastor. 
Tell me about my congregation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so it's a Jesuit parish in Manhattan, a large, diverse urban congregation. A lot of people who travel in because they're choosing Xavier both for the connection to Jesuit spirituality, for its commitments to social justice, for the quality of the liturgy, some really great music. And then maybe another thing that would be important to know is that the parish also helps sponsor the Xavier Mission, which does outreach to homeless folks who are in the neighborhood. And a number of those folks are also members of the congregation who regularly worship there as well. So what's especially important for you to think about as you're preaching to this congregation? Well, what's important to me is that these are people who are intentional about their spirituality. They want to think about how to encounter God and how to take a message away from liturgy that they can pray with and go deeper into over the course of the week. So I'm trying to offer something that will help feed that spirit of prayer and do it particularly in sort of an Ignatian framework where you're going to dive into the gospel and situate yourself in the gospel and as one of the hearers of the gospel, you know, imaginatively to whom Jesus might have preached it originally. Hmm. Well, let's dive in and hear what you have to offer. We will now hear Sam Sawyer's homily for the 12th Sunday in Ordinary Time, Year A, especially recorded for Preach. Nothing is concealed that will not be revealed, nothing secret that will not be known. That's what the Gospel tells us. That's what Jesus has to say to his disciples. And look, as most of you know, my day job is in the news business. I'm an editor of a magazine. And even though America Magazine doesn't do investigative journalism as such, if you tell me that there's a secret that's about to be revealed, I start to expect a scandal. News at 11, what they've been hiding from you. And if somebody told me that something secret about me was about to be revealed, I would get anxious. What did I do wrong? How did I get caught? Those are the kind of questions that would be in my head. And I think many of us might, you know, by default or by our own history of religious formation, might have some sense of God is watching us, as if God is sort of surveilling us. This sense that maybe we're told by, you know, a well-meaning grandparent at some point or by a teacher somewhere early in elementary school, God sees what you're doing. Even if it's done in secret, God sees it. And maybe this language from Jesus in the gospel, nothing is concealed that will not be revealed, nothing hidden, nothing secret that will not be known, maybe that starts to get us thinking about God is watching, God knows, I've got to be extra careful. But I think it's important for us to ask ourselves the question, what does it feel like to have God watching us? And does it feel like surveillance or does it feel like support? Because we should also remember that in this gospel that we just read, it's not just nothing is concealed that will not be revealed, nothing secret that will not be made known, but also God sees even the sparrow. And fear not, for you are worth more than many sparrows. What we have to remember maybe most deeply is that the line right before nothing is concealed that will not be revealed, nothing secret that will not be known, Right before that, Jesus says, fear no one. This is supposed to somehow be a message of confidence. And so I think it's worth diving into our readings today to explore how that confidence is something that Jesus wants to communicate to his disciples, what Jesus' insight is for his disciples and for us today. 
So it might help to look back at the first reading where the prophet Jeremiah is talking about the experience of persecution. And for him, this cuts very close to the bone because he's saying, all those who are my friends are on watch for any misstep of mine. He does have this sort of experience of surveillance of people on whom he had relied, people whom he thought should be supporting him, should be friends, should be people on whom he can count. And all of a sudden they've turned on him and they are looking to catch him out. But instead, what happens through the rest of the first reading is that Jeremiah turns to God for vindication, turns to God for support. So this surveillance of what's he going to do wrong, how can we catch him out, that's not coming from God. That's coming from Jeremiah's enemies. That's coming from the people who are resistant to the message that Jeremiah is commissioned by God to preach. And it's God who offers vindication and support and God on whom Jeremiah relies. And that, I think, actually does lead us into hearing the gospel somewhat more accurately. Hearing the gospel that starts fear no one and ends with reassuring us of God's care for us, God's counting every hair on our heads. Because this chunk of Matthew that we're reading, which really, you know, there isn't a story in this gospel. There's just a bunch of advice from Jesus, some sayings that have been compiled together. But it occurs in Matthew just after Jesus has told his disciples to expect coming persecution. And so some of the context we have for this is we know that the community for which the Gospel of Matthew was written was a community of largely Jewish Christians who were in the process of struggling about whether or not they belonged in the synagogue and how the message of Jesus and how their faith in Jesus would relate to their friends, their family members, the other people in the Jewish community around them. So they were working themselves with this question of how do we live together as a community? How do we relate to a larger community? And to whom do we belong? On whom do we rely when we preach the message of Jesus and it is not maybe received as readily as we might hope? So that's sort of the context where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's to these people that Jesus says, fear no one, because nothing is concealed that will not be revealed and nothing is secret that will not be known. And so what we're talking about being revealed here isn't that, you know, there's some great closed-circuit television system in the sky with which God is recording every last transgression and then will hold us to account for it. What we're talking about being revealed here is the revelation of God's purpose and kingdom and care for us. That's why this leads into the lines about you are worth more than many sparrows which is also just a great and funny line and I think is meant to elicit at least partially a chuckle, right? Like we are worth more than many sparrows. That, that feels like a thing that we should trust. And yet it's announced to us here as a reminder that we have to be woken up to. So as Matthew is proposing this counsel from Jesus, these recommendations from Jesus about how to approach the coming of the kingdom, about how to approach our own preaching of the kingdom and commitment to the kingdom, often in the face of doubt and persecution and division, what he reminds his hearers is that God's care, the meaning of God's kingdom, God's abundant generosity and deep love for us, even if it feels secret and hidden and concealed now, it will be made known. 
And if we want to think our way in, if we want to pray our way in to that real transformation, that conversion of imagination that Matthew is inviting, that Jesus is inviting in this gospel, then I think we also have some resources from the second reading in St. Paul's letter to the Romans. And I'd like to point us to one line in particular there where St. Paul says, the gift is not like the transgression. So he is doing, and, and Paul does this frequently, especially in Romans, a kind of back and forth between sin and grace and tension with each other. And he uses the tension also, sort of the archetypes of Adam, of our fallen human nature, and of Christ as the redemption of our human nature. But when he says the gift is not like the transgression, Paul reminds us that these are not just one-for-one one equivalencies, you know, sin bad, grace good. He's saying that sin closes in on itself. There's no life there. It collapses almost. It doesn't get any bigger. But the gift is not like the transgression because grace opens up to something much larger. And so grace is not just the mere image of sin. It's not like, you know, sin is negative five and grace is positive five. Grace is something entirely different and larger and more wonderful than sin could ever be. And so if we're modeling our imagination on sin and then just saying grace fixes sin, we will never have a big enough imagination to begin to relate to what God is doing. And so I think that rhymes as well with the message of this gospel, with Jesus saying, what is secret, what is concealed now will be revealed. What is done in darkness, what you hear in darkness, you should proclaim in daylight, and what you hear in secret, you should announce from the housetops. Jesus is imagining a larger future, a more hopeful coming of the kingdom, maybe than the community that's hearing this is ready to imagine right now. And so that's the challenge I'd invite us to consider today, too. When we look at all the ways that the world is broken, that the world experiences strife and division, that we are set against each other, are we able to imagine how God might transform that? Are we able to imagine that a God who cares for the fall of every sparrow, or since we're here in New York City, a God who has accounted for every last pigeon everywhere in Manhattan, are we able to imagine what the care of such a God will actually look like when it is brought fully into the light, when that is the shape with which we experience the whole world. I think that's what the gospel asks us to imagine today, a transformation towards God's kingdom, a transformation in which we know, right down to our bones, that the God who watches over us watches over us in care and in love and in support. And once we know that, once that secret has been revealed to us, once that secret has been revealed in our hearts and in our communities, then we're supposed to speak that message in the light and announce it from the rooftops. That was Sam Sawyer for Preach. After the break, we'll hear how Sam leans into the hard truths of the gospel to call the listener to an experience of greater understanding and loving conversion. Welcome back to Preach. Thank you. Sam, I have the privilege of having you in studio so I can see you as you're delivering this homily. One of the things that really strikes me is 
when I read the text, it's a pretty hard thing to tell people to remind them of this idea that God is watching over you. Because for so many of us, that is a very punishing image. It's an image of God's wrath, the impending judgment. And yet, as I heard you deliver it, it landed differently. One, because I could see there was a very warm smile on your face. And I need to translate that so that our listeners know that that was happening because they can't see you. But I do think that just listening to you, they would have heard a certain warmth. And I think that's an important part of what we do in a homily, right? How we appear, how we sound in our homily is as important as what we say. I would certainly agree. And, you know, at St. Francis Xavier, and actually at most places where it works in the liturgical space and where it works in that community's pattern of liturgy, I preach, as we say, from free space. So not from behind the ambo or the pulpit, but out in front of the altar. Not so much so I can walk around, but because I found that it's very important for me if I write a homily out word for word, it gets a little wooden in delivery or the cadence somehow feels wrong. It feels too stilted or too stiff, too same, too stiff. Yeah. So what I do and what I gave you guys to prepare for preach was a set of bullet points because then I can explore those spaces sort of in between the bullet points. Sometimes it's important to sort of wait and reach for the word or the concept or the phrase because I think... I mean, I can feel this sort of in the energy with the congregation as I'm preaching, but it's this moment of shared reflection, of waiting and going, wait, what does that mean? And then we can enter into it together. One of my liturgy teachers in theology, you know, said, when you say as a presider, let us pray, you actually should stop and let people pray for a moment before you dive into the collect. And I think there's a similar rhythm that I try to go for in a homily as well to help people be part of the experience of we're all encountering God together in this. This is not just me delivering content for you, but it's us together reaching for what God is giving us. You know, often when we preach and we look at the readings we try to go with what's going to make the congregation feel good or sort of an easy way in. It seems to me that you really chose the hard sayings, right? The hard truths here. It isn't the most common approach. What are you thinking when you're doing that? Yeah. So I've often said, and this has been something, a question I ask myself as I approach preaching, what is the hardest thing about this gospel to believe? Or maybe a question that rhymes with that, what about this gospel provokes anxiety or frustration or concern? And it's really that latter question that drove this homily. I mean, I remember when you invited me on preach and said, we'd like to give you June 25th, the 12th Sunday in Ordinary Time. So, of course, I went and grabbed the readings and looked at the gospel and went, oh, my gosh. Like, I'm, I'm not sure I want to preach this gospel, right? And so in my own prayer in preparation— I tried to explore and ask God about what is that anxiety about and is that actually what you're inviting me to here? And what happened as I prayed with it, as I also situated the gospel, you know, looked at its broader context within Matthew and looked at some commentary on it, I realized that's not the hiddenness and secretness that God is talking about at all here. That's just not what the gospel is doing. But it was where it grabbed me first, right? And so, yeah, that's actually oftentimes something I'll do when I'm preaching is talk about the way a gospel might grab us wrong so that we can then explore that and say, well, what's really going on there? But the other thing is that the image of God as watching and always ready to catch us out when we do something wrong, 
it leads to this pattern where we are trying to be perfect under our own power, not where we are relying on God. And the most hopeful message you can give somebody is God loves you and we have to live, we're called to live in dependence on that love, mm-hmm. not as people who are so perfect that we will never set a foot wrong, but as people who rely on the mercy and care of God. Maybe going deeper into the scriptures, you paint a picture of the early Christians in the Gospel of Matthew and this historical context of persecution, that they were being persecuted as Jewish Christians, that their Jewish identity was somehow at stake, right? We, and we should also say that they were they were doing some of their own persecuting as well. You know, So there was a division going on between Jewish congregations that were following Jesus and others that were not. And so it's not as simple as saying, you know, persecution bad and oppressed Christians good. But yeah, they're going through this experience of separation and trial. But when you're doing this, when you're narrating this experience that we read in the scriptures, what are you trying to do for the congregation? So for me, this comes out of my own experience and formation in Ignatian spirituality as a Jesuit. Oftentimes when we're praying in the style of Ignatian contemplation, what we're doing is putting ourselves into the scene of the gospel, imagining what it's like to hear the gospel. So we're taking the position of one of the disciples or of someone whom Jesus heals or something like that. And this can be very easy to do in a gospel that has a narrative arc. You know, if there's a healing story, you've got a beginning, middle, and end of the story, you know where to fit yourself in. In a story like this that's just sort of sayings, in this gospel passage, that's harder to do. But I find that one of the things that's helpful is knowing something from scripture scholarship about the context in which this would have been heard by the first community can help situate us in our imagination. So you're not trying to make direct comparisons or it's not analogous, right? I mean, because you can fall into these anachronistic, diachronistic sort of slips. You're really just trying to say, let's look at what their experience was and then try to map that onto maybe what I'm going through, some persecution, some tussle within myself, one way or the other. Does it evoke something for me? And then if it does, maybe there's some grace in that. Maybe there is something that God is inviting me to understand more deeply, to understand with a different kind of insight. So you've worked with really difficult readings and chosen hard sayings in those readings. You also chose to preach on three of the readings. So you've made this sort of, you know, a trifecta of difficulty for yourself. What are you thinking here? So I will say that was not my first instinct. My first instinct was just to stick with the gospel. And as I was trying to prepare the homily, I found that that didn't work. I didn't have enough structure in the gospel to kind of get there. And so oftentimes when that happens, the lectionary often pairs the first reading in the gospel so that they have some relation to each other, which was the case on this Sunday as well. And then really that reach for the second reading is just that I I loved the line. And as I sat and prayed with this, the gift is not like the transgression, kept coming back. And here's what got me, and I feel like I can be candid with you because we're friends. I struggled to follow that in some ways because the words were kind of difficult to sort of wrap your head around in the moment. I'm wondering if you can talk about that. So there's a principle in textual interpretation that we often apply to scripture called lexio difficilor, the more difficult reading. And the idea is if you have, you know, sort of like multiple manuscript copies of something, you should prefer actually the most awkward version, the one that's hardest to understand, because the assumption is that 
if you know a scribe is going to fix a manuscript as they're copying it, they're going to fix it in the direction of being easier to understand. Hmm. So the oldest, most original thing is probably the one that makes the least sense to you on first encounter. And it invites us to wrestle with it, right? So the assumption is if there's something that I struggle with, that might be where the action is. That might be where God is at work. And I found that I'm able to invite a congregation into some of that experience as well, so that I hope when you leave, you don't leave with, oh, I have this great insight, and now I can make sense of this reading. But instead, you leave with, I need to pray about this. There's something God wants to say to me here. We've spoken a lot about struggle. I wonder if you can share briefly a struggle you've had in learning how to preach or in the craft of preaching, and maybe how you've found help for that struggle over the years? So one thing I remember from my deacon year, when I was initially preaching purely from behind the pulpit and with every word written out and trying very hard to make sure that there was a very clear explanation at the end of everything, my pastor challenged me. He said both, A, make the homilies shorter, which was a great challenge. But he also said, try preaching without the notes Try preaching from out in free space. And so, you know, my first couple rounds of that were an attempt to do the homily the way I always did and then memorize the whole thing and deliver it from memory. But gradually, I got more comfortable with preaching in that more sort of dialogical fashion, or at least the imagined dialogue, in a conversation with someone as I'm trying to evoke an experience. And it was really freeing for me. I found it led to better preparation of homilies on my part. It led to deeper prayer on my part. And it also, you know, from what I heard from people in the congregations, it led to homilies that felt more real, more authentic, that helped them more. Hmm. And so, yeah, it was a great challenge to rely more on the experience of how God is working rather than on being able to explain it in perfect clarity. Yeah, I mean, the way I describe it often is the challenge of preaching is not so much about perfect prose, right? It's kind of just being as natural as you can be in a conversation where, as you've said earlier, you're reaching for words. You're like, okay, where do I go next? (laughs) And that helps the congregation to feel like, you know, they're in an experience of conversation with you. Yeah. One of the ways I describe my experience of preaching is it's, it's believing out loud for people. And by that, I mean, I think that it is more helpful, it is more important for a preacher to share the experience of believing with a congregation than to share the content of belief. How much they know. Right. I'm not trying to convey concepts. What I'm trying to convey is my own reliance on God and my own hope in God. The best thing I have to offer someone else is the invitation to deeper love and trust in God. And so that's the core of my own experience of belief. And what I want when I sit in a congregation and I'm listening to a homily, and so also what I want to offer people when I'm the one delivering the homily is this is worth believing in, and it's possible to believe in this. And when you do, life opens up. Grace abounds. I know I've preached well when I go back to the presider's chair and sit down and feel more deeply rooted in God at that moment. And that's also what I want to try to offer to a congregation, that you can feel more deeply rooted in God if you imagine believing this way. Sam, thank you so much for joining us on Preach. I know in great part, this was your brainchild. So it's good to have you here with us in the studio 
talking about your own practice of preaching. It's been really wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Preach. You can find the readings and a link to the transcript for the homily in our show notes. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Compelling Preaching Initiative, a project of Lilly Endowment, Inc. Preach is produced by me and Maggie Van Dorn. Frank Tewson is our audio engineer. He also designed the theme score and composed original music for the podcast. Sebastian Gomes is our executive producer. We recorded in the William J. Loschett Studio in New York City with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Christopher Spillman. If you've heard a great homily recently or know a great preacher you'd like to recommend for this podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Please follow the link in our show notes. You can follow me on Twitter at RickDSSJ. That's R-I-C-D-S-S-J. And one more thing. Did you know that American media can deliver new scripture reflections to your inbox every day? If you are already a digital subscriber, they're probably in your inbox. If not, become a digital subscriber today for just $5.99 a month. It's the best way to support our work here on Preach. Just visit the link in the show notes. For American media, I'm Ricardo De Silva. Until next time, keep preaching the good news.